that you can't live your life differently any other way. Colossians 3, verse 22 is where he begins to speak about slavery or bondservants all the way to the end of the letter. Speaking about this household code, he says this, Bondservants, the ESV translates, doulos, slave. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. And then he flips it. He turns his attention to the masters and says, Now masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. He speaks to the church now and says, Continue steadfast in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. Now Paul is a slave. That I may make it clear, even while he's in prison, he wants to be bold. That I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak, even in chains, with the threat of his life. I will speak the gospel boldly, Paul says. And he's not any different than you and I. He needs prayer to do that. Has anyone ever been nervous to speak about Jesus? Don't lie. He says, walk in wisdom now toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have uh, sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and uh, that uh, he may encourage your hearts. And with him, uh, Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother, who is with you, who is one of you, I'm sorry. Onesimus was a Colossian who fled from his slave master. And the sermon series will continue in Philemon next week. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. All these names, who are these people? They're so small and insignificant, it's almost micro Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are uh, the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers uh, for the kingdom of God. And they have become a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. 
Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to uh, in the church of her house. And uh, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of Laodicea and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, this man no one knows, but Paul does, enough so much to say, see that you fulfill the ministry. Fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Remember my chains. He begins by addressing slavery and speaking about how a bondservant should act and how a master should relate. All perfectly dovetailed and tied together with his parting line is, and remember my chains. He's not speaking without experience of understanding what a bondage could be. Here is this on our topic, microeconomics, the relation of the home at a small level. The theme has always been and continues today is that the small things matter. Our small lives, the little things in our lives that no one knows about or cares about matter. The greatest, the greatest solution to egotism and particularly in our time of wanting to always have something online and be big and public and famous, is the reality that no one cares. No one cares what you say or think. Equally true is, he really cares what you say and think. And he's more important than everybody. That's what matters. It actually is very important, but not for the reasons we normally think. All the little things of our life, the microeconomies of our existence, are observed by the Lord. And that, that is where the value arises. That is why everything's important. That is why you should get up in the morning. That is why every single thing you do is beautiful or not before the Lord. And therefore, it all matters. Down to this last part of this household code in which we spoke originally of the marriage and the paternal to child relationship. And now he addresses this one of a slavery master relation. Slavery in the household. The ESV translates this word doulos as bondservant and for good reason because we all know what slavery means for us as modern Americans. It means something very distinct and even after so many years the pain of that word has not left us. It riddles our political discourse, our ethical discourse. It riddles everything we do as Americans because of that word slavery. And so therefore the ESV translators have tried to do their best by at least giving it the phrase bondservant so that someone doesn't just simply read across the text and import all of their ideas of the word into this wisdom. Someone's car alarm's going off, I think. That wasn't in my notes, by the way. I didn't know that when I was writing this. Um, slavery in this household uh, is to obey everything, he says, as your earthly masters would have. Not as eye service, 
as people pleasers, sincerely from the heart, fearing the Lord, that you would have an inheritance from the fact that you are serving Christ the Lord. That's it. That's why it matters. Even down to this, you're the bottom of the rung of the Roman Empire in the social strata. What is the purpose of your life? You are serving the Lord. If your master calls you to do something, do it for the Lord. Do it as though the Lord were watching because he is. And then the reverse, he says to masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly for you have a master in heaven. Again, the perceptions of the Lord, not only on the slave, but also upon the master overseeing this whole thing. Christ is redefining the institution of slavery, that it would never be absolute in the Roman world and extending to the rest, and why we had emancipation and all the ethical problems that came out of the Christian West. The re reality of why we hate slavery so much is only, only a reaction to the Christian consciousness that came from the West. Mind you, all the other cultures also had slavery. We just happened to hate it. Doesn't justify it, but we had the gospel given. Most of the portion of all of Acts extends to the West. Anatolia, all the way up to Greece and Rome. There's not a lot of the gospel that made it to the East and India and whatnot within the first few centuries. The West was on the back of Paul's missionary journeys. On the back of these letters, preachers generation after generation preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. All of us are sinners. All of us deserve death in Christ. It produces a social system. It produces a self-consciousness that later on we say, hey, this isn't right. And we repudiate it. And that's not because Americans or the transatlantic slave were the first ones to try that out. We were just the ones that did it and ended up really hating it because we also had a lot of Christians in our country too. See, here is the redefinition of all of these micro-relations because they're all related to Jesus up top. Nothing becomes absolute now. The husband and wife relation, wives submit as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as the Lord loved the church. You see, these relations are still present. Paul has not, he is not an anarchist. He is not overthrowing the whole entire social system. All he is doing, and the beauty of what he's done in Colossians, is Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All he's doing is taking everything that exists and interjecting Jesus in all of it. And the transformation occurs at a micro level from within. That the marriage is transformed because now Jesus is Lord over the man and the woman. The same thing with parents to children. Children, obey your parents as is pleasing to the Lord. Obey your parents for the Lord's sake. And then he says also to fathers, do not provoke them to anger. Bring them under the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Not your discipline and instruction. That relation redefined by the Lord Jesus and here now with slave and master, serve your master for the Lord's sake. And master, remember, as you rule over your servant, there is a master of masters. There is a Lord of lords. There is a king of kings. And that is redefined as well. This is the beauty. 
of what Paul has laid out in his old letter to say, I want to manifest the mystery of Christ. And that mystery needs meditation to unlock in all civil institutions and areas of life. And this is exactly how he goes about it in his letter. So when tyranny uh, feels like it's being topped down, it's actually not. When you feel oppressed, see the thing is, in our culture, it's so remarkable that um, people are offended, offended by this idea of, of the husband being the head of the home. Well, that's not in my job description. I, I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, that's what it... Preach the word. But the misunderstanding is interpreting that headship outside of Christ. Bringing inside of that all of the sinful ideologies and, and relations that actually do really corrupt the marriage. All that still exists, of course. But the knowledge and the wisdom of the mystery of Jesus is that husbands, we're talking, this sermon series is microeconomics for the Christian home. This is all predicated on a home that is under the Lord Jesus. That is where headship makes sense. Other than that, it's just raw tyranny in every institution. And it feels top down. It feels domineering. But really the reason tyranny exists is there is a problem of coming up. It's a, it's a way of thinking that is bottom up. How you think, how you feel about things produces tyranny. If it is top down, that is if Jesus is over it all, there's no tyranny at all. It's actually counterintuitive to put Jesus up top and have him rule and reign from the top down sounds oppressive. But if he is the good one, that is called liberty. So when a, a secularist might hear male headship or, or might hear something about um, this master-slave relation, how it's not absolutely repudiated in the postmodern sense of the term, we're we're not talking of the same thing. We're talking about all institutions being ruled and reigned top down by the bleeding Christ on the cross. That image, if lost, none of this makes sense anymore. But ruling and reigning from top down, Him being that merciful man. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I will lift your burdens. Even down to the tyranny of this master-slave relation is transitioned into something actually that could be good. Onesimus is this man listed at the end of the letter. And he was a slave. If even in the culture of Rome there was an oppressive, and of course the institution of slavery in the first century of the Roman Empire was very broad and complicated and there were many versions and types and existences of a slave. So a slave in a Roman household could be the most educated person in that house. They could be the slave that is tutoring the aristocratic man's children. Paid well, room and board, given dignity, honor, respected in the public square, and a slave, you see. We're not talking about the same thing when you hear the word slavery. And of course, at the same time, slaves could be brutalized and, and abused. 
There was a way in which a slave could try to relieve himself from that, which was simply just running away. There were sanctuary areas within the empire. A slave could run to a temple or some statue, statue to find asylum and to run away from his master. And then the, so, the city prefect would find him and decide the case. So there actually was a place for appeal or a place for a redress if this institution got out of hand. But James Jeffries describes it beautifully, probably even the best, when he, uh, as a historian, tries to outline what he means or what the scriptures would be addressing when it speaks of first century slavery. He lists particularly four uh, reasons, four causes of why someone generally would become a slave within the Roman Empire. Now you can see when these are outlined why Paul doesn't repudiate it outright. Because actually, in some ways, it does better than us. Reason one he lists is because of war. If someone was taken captive in war, they could be made a slave. Which is the opposite of not just simply being put to death. So in that sense, it's not too bad. It's actually, slavery was a mercy. Instead of just being killed, the prisoner would put down his arms, surrender. It was an act of mercy simply just not to take his life. And he could live a life eating, working, becoming a member of society through the avenue of slavery. It wasn't necessarily bad. Debts. If someone could not afford to eat, to feed his family, to have anything for his home, he could bring himself voluntarily to the point of slavery so that he could better himself. And through the avenue of slavery was Roman citizenship. And most all slaves statistically were uh, emancipated, manumissioned by around the age of 30. If you have nothing, if you are starving, and if you are not a Roman citizen, you are at the bottom of the bottom and close to death. There is no social security system. Let's step out of our first world problems in America. That if you're just hungry, go Get on a social program. That didn't exist in the old world. This was the social program. If you have nothing, literally nothing, you could become a slave and by the end have citizenship for you and your children forever. It wasn't all bad. Abandoned babies. They became slaves. 63 to 65 million are slaughtered. And we are going to judge them and the scriptures because it talks about slavery in a not that bad way. Self-righteous Americans, they at least didn't kill theirs. They put them in at least slavery. And how did the church grow in the first century? All the Christians grabbing the babies and loving them and bringing them into their home. And then some postmodern person reads one Bible verse and says, look at the Bible supporting slavery, you wicked person. You don't know. Here you applaud the death of innocent life. Might as well just open a Colosseum again. But the last one is legitimate. That sometimes people were brought in slavery simply by slavers. They were just stolen unjustly and put into the institution of slavery. Which, of course, is wicked. Which, of course, is exactly what we did in the transatlantic slave. 
We stole people and brought them into slavery. So we did the only one out of all the major reasons someone could be a slave in the first century. We took that one and made that our money cow. That's what we did in our country. And this, so as to make sure that no one is left with Paul's letter reading that maybe the Bible is in some way racist or supporting slavery. Exodus 21.16. That particular version of slavery is demarcated and condemned. Exodus 21 verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone is found in possession of that man will simply be put to death. Zero tolerance for man stealing. Zero tolerance for the only slavery that everyone ever talks about from the beginning, thousands of years ago, condemned explicitly. And not just as that wasn't a nice thing to do. You deserve to die if you steal somebody. And then in the first century, Paul, in his letter to 1 Timothy 1.10, explicitly, as you know now when we read Colossians, he did not have that in mind as he spoke about bondservants. Because in another letter to 1 Timothy 1.10, he mentions this to say the law, which I just quoted, was laid down not just for the Uh, Not for the just, but for the unjust, the disobedient, the unholy, the profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, those who are murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and enslavers. Enslavers, see? Paul goes out of his way to say, now, that one thing of enslaving men, stealing them, you are condemned. So there's no connection of that to what we just read in Colossians. That Paul would have any of that in his credence. That that should be acceptable. Notice his model for addressing large, complicated, political, social corruptions or institutions such as slavery. Micro. Micro. Small. I don't know how to tell you this, but the first century church did not have the internet. And I'm glad you were all sitting down to hear that. How did they do it? Before there was a social network, there was actually a real people network. A network of actual little people. Little people that Rome doesn't care about. But Paul did. The end of his letter, all those names... To you and I, their names from people of old. To Paul, those were his closest and dearest beloved friends and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in the faith. That is how they overturned the belly of the dragon to cut it open. That is the dragon of Revelation, the civil institution corrupted and eating and killing. They did it through what no one thinks is important, microeconomics. Small relations. Individual slaves. Individual masters who come to Christ. Put Christ into it. Change the institution from the inside out. Infect the whole thing. The ungodly sickly thing. With the healing virus of Jesus. Let Jesus get inside of this problem. This Leviathan. Let Jesus inside. And let him infect the thing from within. And heal it. Jesus is the wisdom of God. To unite all things. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That through him to reconcile to himself all things. By making peace with his blood on the cross. 
And Paul immediately takes that truth that is mediated by the power of the preached word and the spirit descending because of the resurrection of Christ at Pentecost that he can change anything this way. He can change false slavery and bad governments so that the unity being washed by the blood of Jesus Christ would actually make the slave-master relation actually harmonious, actually a good thing of gentility and love. Jesus can do that to a marriage, to a family, and yes, even to the institution of slavery. The Christians, as we understand the whole corpus of what the scriptures speak of slavery. We actually embrace this metaphor. See, we embrace the slave mentality. For us, it's not ugly. It's not demeaning. This master, because he is our master, he is so good. He is so merciful. He is so just and loving and kind, full of virtue. He brings you under his wings. He comforts you and brings you into his home. This is the master you want. This is the slave master you have to find. Because being a slave is essential to human nature. We cannot avoid being a slave. Now a young a German boy hated this idea. He was a German boy of a Lutheran pastor, actually. So he would have sat and heard of the gentleness of Christ and how we are to be a slave under his rule. And he grew up to be a young man in his 20s or so. That is, in the 1860s, he would have been around 20 or so. So when we were here in our states in the 1860s, having to deal with our sins of slavery because if you steal a man, you deserve to die. And therefore, on uh, the, 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 the soils of America, over 600,000 men lost their life because we decided to steal other men from Africa. And we store it up for ourselves, wrath. And 600,000 is a good bit. It would have been nice if we stopped it at the beginning. But while that was going on, as while America was bleeding out for its sins, this man, Frederick Nietzsche, was writing about how much he hated Christianity. And the reason, one of them was for this, slave morality. Because he knew it well. The son of a pastor. He knows what Christianity says about slave morality. That is, it is for the vulgar, the common person, the herd mentality. It is for slaves. That the weak will inherit the earth. That the crippled, the lame, the ones who are not strong, the ones who are not self-righteous, the ones who are not confident and morally superior, intellectually superior, socially superior, those are the ones Jesus cares for. Those are the ones who aren't proud and can hear the gospel. And Nietzsche hears it all and hates it. He hated that slave mentality. In his book, The Genealogy of Morals, he writes about how slave mentality is the worst thing to come upon Europe and the Western world. He writes instead about what should be what was in the old Greek world before the Christians overtook it by letters like Colossians. The Christians overtook this aristocratic ethic that the Romans loved was power, honor, dignity, democracy. Aristocracy of the strong, the cunning, the master. Nietzsche likened these kind of people to birds of prey. And the slave mentality of the Christians too likened lambs. And this is a beautiful quote that shows you the deep depths of the despair. He says this, It is not surprising that the lambs should bear a grudge against these great birds of prey. 
But that is not the reason for blaming the great birds of prey for taking the little lambs. To explain, he's saying, if someone has a will to power, if someone is more domineering, if someone is more intelligent and cunning and able to rule over other men, he's just a bird of prey doing what is his nature. Some of us are birds of prey. Some of us are hawks and eagles that love to feed. And some of us are weak, timid, and we were meant to be ruled. We were meant to be enslaved. Hitler had Nietzsche on his nightstand, by the way. He liked him a lot, maybe even down to his mustache. Nietzsche describes this as the danger of Christianity. It makes everyone equal by making everyone a slave. And so I will run the risk of endangering you now by reading you Romans 6. I feel confident that this is the better course to go considering the events of the 20th century. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone, you are obedient to the sla- and slaves and slave to the one whom you obey? Either to sin leading to death, or you are obedient leading to righteousness. Thanks be to God. Though you were once slaves to sin, you become obedient to the heart, to the standard of teaching from which you are committed. Having been set free from sin, you become a slave to righteousness. There is no middle ground. You are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness. You are a slave to what you perceive to be your own desires, wills, and passions. And in reality, you are worshiping Satan himself. You perceive that as freedom and you are bound by it. You cannot not sin. There's no way to avoid this sin. You are enslaved. You are lesser. You are contingent. It's human nature. We must serve somebody. And the reverse is not a middle ground of, I don't know if I'm going to follow Baal or I'm going to follow Yahweh. No, you either are worshiping Baal or you are worshiping Yahweh. There is no middle ground. And then being translated over that you would actually be called slaves of righteousness. That is, by the Spirit of God being poured out upon your heart, you hate sin. You are bound. You have been given the chains of the Holy Spirit over your mind and your hands and your tongue. He has choked you out so that you wouldn't speak your bitter words. That you would actually speak life and love and grace. He's made you his slave. But see, that without this image, the whole gospel makes no sense. There is no middle ground. I remember speaking with a particular person who struggles uh, with his assurance of salvation. That he would know whether he truly is a child of God if he is really born from above. I remember speaking with this person and I said very clearly, here's, a, here's what you can do. Go ahead. Be free. Be free. You're not really free. Pretend as though you're really free. Cheat, lie, steal, gossip, slander, sexual sin, avoid worship, do not communion with God, do not pray, do not do any of these things. 
Go ahead. And the response is, well, if I did that, I'd feel terrible. Then you're enslaved to righteousness. He's got you. You are his. He has bound his shackles upon you. And you will be righteous. If I did that, I'd be depressed and I'd feel terrible myself. And I'd wallow and feel convicted and it'd be horrible. It would, it would just be so contrary to what I want. Then you are his. You are enslaved to Christ. To offer your members as instruments of righteousness. Notice how Paul has set this up. And the reality is, of course, with, with Egypt, you have, what did they do? Enslaved to this great empire of Egypt, and they didn't have a middle ground of going through the wilderness and being free for a few minutes. They went from slavery to slavery. They went from being enslaved to Egypt to Yahweh being their God, parting the sea. And he says to Moses beforehand, go to Pharaoh and tell him this, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Let my people go that they may worship me. That is, they will give homage to me, not you. There will never be a middle moment in which they are doing things for themselves. That is unavoidable. You cannot serve some God. You want to be made up in your own mind or the one true God. But straight from Egypt, they go into the wilderness to have Yahweh as their king, their lord, their master. The whole Ten Commandments is predicated on this actual thing. And so Paul brings in his picture where he interprets himself now and the micro. And here's where we see the small relations that matter. Here's where we see how it makes sense for us today. Paul interprets his ministry as being a slave or using the slave image. Pray for us, he says, that God may open up a door for his word that I may declare the mystery of Christ on account of my imprisonment. He, in many places, spoke of himself as being a slave to Christ, whether he was truly imprisoned or everything he had to do was obligated upon him by the Father, moving him. He was enslaved. But Paul doesn't leave it there. You have to see the verse where he extends this letter, not to pastors. He extends this letter not to missionaries, evangelists. This letter is to the church. He says at the end, have this, church, have this letter read to all of them. And then get the other letter from the other church and read that. We are not employed by Jesus. You are not employed by Him. You do not work a nine to five for Christ. You are His slave for righteousness. There is no middle ground and there is no minute in which you are not his and he is not yours. This mentality that he puts upon them, writing to them as fellow slaves, fellow prisoners, co-laborers he calls them. He divides all the secular and sacred. This is what made the church so pivotal because it did not care about so much in social media. It did not care about big mega meetings. It cared about submitting all of life in the most intimate and small micro relations to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and making saltiness and light deep inside the culture. That only works, that only works if everyone understands that's how we do it. So I'll tell you two incidents that, incidents that are not related at all. Two weeks ago, I did something I normally don't do, and I went out and bought a few shirts. 
I did it. <laughs> a few, actually. More than two. That's what a few means. And then I went home, went around my business. Next week, I'm in my car. And I'm listening to the news. And the news said this, which is crazy conspiracy theories as far as I'm concerned. They said on the news, the inflation of the economy has affected things. I said, all right, sure, keep going. And they said that actually the, real, the, the, the um, uh, retail market is taking a hit. People are buying less stuff. And you know what I thought? That's not true. Because I bought three shirts last week. That can't be true. That's impossible. Actually, it's impossible. I stimulated the economy. Do you realize that's exactly how we think of evangelism? American evangelicalism. Preacher, go out there and tell the gospel a little bit. Let's hold an event. Let's hold a social gathering. Let's try to do a public ministry for the good. Why is it laughable when we say, well, that one guy in my one church every once a year says something about Jesus. Microeconomics only works. The gross domestic product of a nation is not my three shirts, I promise you. If all of the church would see what's going on here, if all of the church would see the need that we are all in this together, and the particular injunction is for all of us to have our speech full of grace and let it be, as he says, salt so that we will redeem the time and have something to say to redeem the time when it comes about you. Unless that happens, it's foolishness to think that the gospel will go to the nations. As equally foolish to think that a few bought shirts will stimulate the economy. If all the Christians do not say, I am not gifted to speak about Jesus. I am not gifted to be an evangelist. I am not comfortable to do those things. That's not an option here. There's particular offices and gifts, of sure. But this letter is written to the church. He didn't put a name on it. All of you walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time, investing your time, the Greek translated, buy up the time, buy it. This is a microeconomic decision. If you have five bucks, it won't make a difference. If we all spend five bucks, that's called a good market. That's called making a change at a micro level. But it only works if this verse actually would be burnt upon your conscience. That when you are anywhere, it is time to speak of your master. For you are his slave everywhere. Buy back the time for your master. Your time is your master's time. Buy it back. Invest it. Let your speech, he says, how do you do this then? Oh, it's so beautiful how he says it. Let your speech be gracious and seasoned with salt. The only way it works is to speak graciously in love and still you got to have that edge to you. If you agree with everything everyone says, 
It will not lead to Jesus. I promise you, your conversation will not go that way. Graciously hearing, listening, speaking, and then throwing in that salt that they tasted and say, oh, this man, this man follows the Lord, Christ. You speak with salt. It has to be noticed. And yes, in the workplace, in every place where it actually could cost you something. I mean, it could cost you something. But that's the saltiness. If it doesn't cost anything, it doesn't taste like anything. Why would it be appeasing to say that Jesus is this and Jesus is that, but it looks as though it doesn't mean anything to you? But if there's salt there, if it means something, the world sees, the world knows. This is Paul's counsel to all the church in these micro-relations. The way, the way that we would all relate and all these names he mentions, Epaphras, Mark, Justice, who's, uh, Jesus, whose name is Justice. All these names that mean nothing, they're doing this stuff. So no one knows. No one cares. No one knows what you're doing throughout the rest of your week. Except that you would simply be doing nothing more than living in the presence of your master. And working out all things to redeem his time. The ending, the ending story that Jesus gives us in this is Matthew 25. In which he does speak about exactly the same thing. In which there are those slaves and there is the master. And they all had different talents. There's the motivation. Again, the motivation cannot be, I better try better. I better, I'm enslaved to Christ and this is terrible and I need to do uncomfortable things like preach the gospel. No, no, no. First off, you won't do it anyway and you'll feel bad about not doing it. And it'll be worse. How do I know that? Well, I know myself. Motivated by this. Five talents given to the man. He made ten more. In Matthew 25, the story goes. And the master said to his slave, who invested his money well, redeemed the time, you might say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And another slave was given two talents. He invested it. He took his little microeconomy into the macroeconomy, made a difference. And he made four talents. And he received the same exact honor. Well done, good and faithful servant, the master said. Be uh, faithful. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now this is the one that causes the church to not be a salty light presence of the gospel everywhere they go. That last slave. He was given one talent. He did not invest it. Put it in the ground. That is, he wasted his Monday, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, put it in the ground, did nothing with the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, his value, his gospel. What are these talents, if not the gospel, the gem of heaven? My gosh, like what is five dollars? What is a thousand dollars? What is a million dollars? The spoken word of Jesus Christ opens up the celestial gates of heaven. This is the treasure. I, he says, I knew you, my master, to be a hard a hard man where you reap where you don't sow and you gather where you've not scattered your seed. He 
wouldn't do it, not because he felt guilty or the slave master was making him try to be a better, more faithful presence of Christ in the world. It was the fact that he knew that Jesus was on his back. It was the fact that he knew that the master had this rulership over him. And he hid. He hid it all out of more fear of not just men, but even an additional fear of his master, or in this case, God, in which he didn't do anything with it, buried it in the ground, and nothing happened. And the response is telling of it all. He says, you wicked servant, you do not know that. I am not that way. See, Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That is it. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It bears no fruit. But if it does fall and die, it bears much fruit. He is not asking anything of you that he did not already give. And he is asking to sow where he did already reap. He is able to ask this of you. The, the master did not know. He said, the, the slave said, you are asking to actually reap where you did not sow and you want to gather where you did not scatter seed. Not true. He has sown his own body into the ground and come up alive and you with him. And now he wants the full reward for his suffering. It is his just due. And the motivation of it is his grace upon your life. That when you're full of that joy to be able to speak of the glories of God, that will open the mouth. That will be the one that causes you to actually redeem the time and speak with grace and salt. Father God, Lord, we pray that you would have this reality upon us, Lord, this truth, your great love. You've laid down your life and you said, Lord, that you no longer will call us servants. You lay down your life for a friend. No greater love than this, that someone should lay down his life for a friend. And he says, he says, you are my friend if you do what I command. Father, please help us to do what you command. But no longer, Lord, are we your servants. You've called us friends. You've brought us into your house and treated us better than we ever deserved, that we would actually share in the inheritance, though we are not your children. Father God, please fill us with your spirit. Give us that great joy to see your glory and majesty in all the world. And Lord, we ask for your grace to be a faithful presence in the world. We ask for your grace to take the talents you've given us and take them seriously as talents from our master's hand to be returned to you in praise. Lord, please do this. Please do this in and among us. In Jesus' name we rest in full assurance. Amen.